0: Hello, hello, and welcome to Marita Showing with myself, Nadina Regan. This is the podcast based in Dublin, Ireland, where we talk to well-known people about their lives and about what has made them who they are today. Last time out, you may recall, Andrea Korr was my guest. We talked about her life and creative work. This time out, I'm delighted to say my guest is Patrick Frain. More about him shortly. But first, well, autumn 2020. How are you getting on in these COVID-19 times? What a year. Although this podcast is based in Dublin, uh, I can tell from the stats that people do listen all around the world and... uh, Shout out, by the way, to the two people in Bahrain who seem, for whatever reason, to be really enjoying it. Um, But I can only imagine uh, what it is like now to be so far away. Like a lot of people haven't been abroad since January 2020. And now that it's autumn, we are back in lockdown for another six weeks in Ireland. If you're not familiar with our regime, everything is closed pretty much. The gyms, the pubs, the restaurants, the nightclubs, the theatres, the golf courses. They've closed the golf courses. This has absolutely infuriated a lot of people. But of course, it's all in the service of getting the COVID-19 infection rates down. So hopefully in a few weeks' time, things will be better. We'll be able to enjoy Christmas. Uh, But for the moment, we are all, absolutely all of us, in the cities at least, Heading to the parks. That is our new thing. The park is now our nightclub, our pub, our restaurant, our place to go dating, our place to break up with people. We were there uh, yesterday actually and passed not one but two couples breaking up with each other, which is actually quite grim when you think about it. Like you have to go to the park to arrange a date and then go to the park to break up with that person. Tough times. But it does probably explain why lately, uh, I don't know if you've noticed this if you are in a city in Ireland, but a lot of people are really getting very dressed up for the parks. Uh, I've spotted a girl yesterday who was the full face on and I'm talking the layers of makeup, the hair pulled up high into a high ponytail, really pulled back off her face. And then she had a fake fur um, jacket, leather pants and heels and honestly (laughs) I was looking at her thinking should we all do that I mean maybe that's a thing you know because maybe rather than being like oh god what is she doing in the park dressed like that we should all be like listen we don't have enough opportunities these days to get dressed up so let's change the idea of the park let's just turn it into the park club Let's move on to my guest on this episode of My Roots Are Showing, Patrick Frayne. Patrick, if you're not familiar with his work, is a journalist with the Irish Times. He's also a musician in Ireland over the past few years. He's become increasingly well known, actually, for his TV reviews, uh, which offer a very surrealist take on the art of television. Um, They're regularly such gripping reviews that links to his pieces get passed around on the internet, on uh, Twitter, like smarties between people. The retweets are something else. Why is that the case? I I would say, put simply, it's because Patrick's writing makes people smile. So it's a happy coincidence that in 2020, which is such a tough year for so many, Patrick has emerged with his first book, Entitled, "Okay, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea, it's a collection of essays, essays about Patrick's own life, uh, but also essays that bring into sharp focus themes that have a universal resonance. Patrick's own background is quite interesting. He uh, was six when he moved from Cork to County Kildare, where his father was in the ranger wing of the Irish army. The book explores how Patrick made his way in life uh, from that point and from that background to... Becoming the lead singer in a band called National Prayer Breakfast or NPB. They made three albums, finished up in 2004. He also tells you about his friends and particularly his friend Paul, who was in the band with him. And he writes very honestly about his occasional tendency towards melancholy and anxiety. The book is partly written to tell you a little bit about himself, but it also is very much there to help the reader along their way. I found it very funny, very wise and very moving. When we met up for this podcast we did so at a point by the way I should probably say that one household in Ireland was still allowed to visit another household so it was all totally above board. Another thing I should mention is uh, for international listeners of this podcast you should probably know who Dermot Bannon is because we do mention him. He is an architect and a very famous TV presenter in Ireland and um, He's well known for loving big windows and glass box extensions. And Patrick has written about him frequently, it's fair to say. One final thing before we move into the interview itself. Uh, I should tell you, this podcast has a Patreon account. So if you would like to support My Roots Are Showing, please do go to patreon.com forward slash Nadina Regan, N-A-D-I-N-E-O-R-E-G-A-N. You can also find a link to that Patreon account via my Twitter account at My Roots Show. It's always a wonderful thing to get any kind of support for the podcast. And included in that, of course, is if you like the podcast, please do consider tweeting about it, giving it a star rating on the platform that you're listening to it on, or just telling your friends about it. It's all very lovely, very much appreciated. And with that, this is Patrick Frains, my roots are showing. My
1: roots are show-
0: Patrick Frain, you are very welcome to My Roots Are Showing. How Thank are you.
1: you? I'm good. I'm very good. My book is about to come out and I'm excited and nervous at the same time.
0: Well, I was about to say congratulations. Now, technically, because of the wonderful world of podcasting, we are talking before the oh. publication of your book, but this will come out after the publication of your book. It is in some ways has been a long time coming for you because you have been writing for decades by this point and writing so well. Uh, An award-winning journalist, of course, with the Irish Times, a multi-award winner critic of the year and someone who I think, you know, people regularly fall upon your pieces, particularly the TV column, I'm thinking now, with with great fondness. And it's the kind of writing that gets retweeted. Um, There are people probably who look upon you with a certain amount of fear Dermot Bannon potentially uh Possibly. but before we talk I suppose about the book and about your background uh because Marita showing is of course a lot about people's stories um I'd love to hear about the kind of status that you've acquired as a critic because it's quite unusual
1: I think I Ireland is a funny place because we're small and uh, things are a bit smaller and things can seem a bit bigger than they are. Um, I just I started doing those types of TV columns in the Tribune back in two thousand and eight. We kind of continued on into the Irish Times eventually, um, and for me, I just loved writers like uh, Clive James, who did who was a TV reviewer back in the seventies, and I loved. The idea that you could um, use writing about. See, TV is an amazing thing to write about because you don't always have to apply the reverence, you kind of have to apply to some other art forms. And also, there are other art forms that are a bit more embattled. You know, it would be kind of mean to go in and start taking the piss out of poets, right? Because it's not the easiest medium in the world to make a living in or at all. Um, But TV is so wide, there's so many things you can talk about and telly is also a kind of weird reflective mirror about where we are at a particular point like if everyone is really into love island it says something or if everyone is really into room to improve it kind of says something about where our culture is at that moment and i love that stuff i love the fact you can you can kind of say things in a joke like i i use humor a little bit like working things out for myself like what do i think about this program why do i like it and i often find that the most obvious way to explain that is as a joke like a a metaphor comes into my brain or something makes me laugh when I just think of it myself and I go okay there's something there and that's usually when I start writing a column when I have that feeling.
0: You have spoken of Dermot Bannon who of course is very famous in Ireland for his program uh, Room to Improve. Uh, You've spoken of him many times or written about him in the column many times there's one line (laughs) just made me laugh so much because Dermot Bannon is, of course, uh, very well known for loving light and space. And uh, I think most recently you reviewed what you called late period uh, Dermot Bannon, uh, where he gets to the point where he starts to doubt the big window and he, you just say, Dermot Bannon doubting big windows, that's like De Valera doubting Ireland, or Sir mix doubting big butts. I'm scared, <laughs> says my wife, who is, I stress, definitely real. Uh, that's just a small excerpt, but um, I wonder, you know, what the kind of reaction is to something like that.
1: I think there's an understanding that a lot of it is jokes. I did an event, we did uh, these summer nights events over the summer kind of It wasn't via Zoom, but it was an online thing where we were interviewing people and I interviewed Dermot Bannon. And that was amazing because um, I really like him and uh, I think he enjoys the columns like he um, said he did. And he didn't really like he thinks it's in good fun. And um, but it was funny when I first met him in a pre-Zoom discussion. He did say, and it sounded genuine, I'm a little scared of this interview, (laughs) And I was like, "Oh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Because actually, that's the other thing I've realized is um, you can't, like, I don't want to be, I don't want to ruin somebody's day with a review. Um, And often the things I really like reviewing are slightly iconic in an Irish context, usually. Or, I mean, sometimes in a British or American context, depending on the show. And what's funny about them is the iconic nature of them. And in a way, you couldn't review Room to Improve the way I review it if it wasn't actually quite a good show. You know, quite good at what it does. In the same way, like, I've, I've done reviews of The Late Late Show where I've had great fun and gone to town on it. But it's in based on the premise that, you know, hit and miss as The Late Late Show is by design. It's a phenomenon. So you can you can be really funny about it in a way that um, I think is fair and actually I read a great um, line in a Stuart Lee, Stuart Lee released a a kind of collection of his stand-up shows a few years ago and it was amazing if you're a student of comedy because the footnotes are almost as long as the, sometimes you go to a page and there's a paragraph and then there's like a footnote that's three times as long beneath have a
0: good footnote.
1: And they're amazing. The footnotes are like little essays and I can't even remember the detail but he makes a joke about some other comedian and the footnote is about how when he first made that joke it was really funny because he was way less famous than that comedian. But at the point he became more famous than that comedian it stopped being as funny and there wasn't as many laughs and he realised it was about the power dynamic. You know like it's about whether you're punching up or punching down and not that I'm punching those shows particularly hard but It's, I figure they know that what I'm picking on are kind of iconic things about the show. They're also, the flip side of what I'm taking the piss out of is why the show is good.
0: Being a critic over time is hard because I think you can start out in your career almost like a Rottweiler, you know, anxious to expose the truth about uh, problematic works and to valiantly sort of fly the flag for people who didn't like things. And then over time, I think, that can change as you realize, and I think a lot of people who go on in their careers really begin to understand this very, very well, that actually it's it's really quite a harsh thing to do, particularly in a small country, to give a very, very bad review to someone who has tried very hard, often for very little money, to create something that they believe to be of worth. And as a reviewer, that conundrum starts to surface as you go on, I think. So did you feel that?
1: Absolutely. And actually, a little bit of what I was referencing with, with Stuart Lee happens, where at a, when you're like a young journalist reviewing stuff and you're kind of just starting out and nobody's listening to you that much, you are kind of the underdog. And at a certain point, as a critic, you're not really the underdog anymore. And and it, so it's it's more bullying i I'm not, I'm not going to have a hard and fast rule on that, because I think it is important that bad reviews exist. Um, because you're not taking the art seriously otherwise. And there's a kind of, there's a new form of ultra positivity in some of the blogosphere that isn't good for the art. Because a good review becomes, and this I, I'm saying this as a book comes out, accept my book, <laughs> give my book positive reviews. But like, good reviews are kind of meaningless unless bad reviews exist. But don't make an example of me. <laughs> um, so there's a kind of, there's definitely a thing like if I give a harsh review, um, I want to say something nice about the show, or I want to say like as as I often say with telly, you'll often have a situation where a really good presenter is hosting just a bit of a crap show. So I might say it's a bit of a crap show, but I do try to say, but they're quite likable and witty, or um, because you don't want to kind of just entirely stick the boot in. But I think it's bad for the art. Like if like I've heard a lot of art people and I get where it's coming from who kind of are really denigrating of critics but they would be complaining if their art wasn't being covered and and if and when you do get a good review it means more because bad reviews exist if it's just cheerleading for the sector I don't think it means as much.
0: It's, it's a strange one because I mean in your new book you talk at one point about Wanting to be liked yourself and how you once chanced upon uh, an internet forum where somebody was discussing your writing style in an unfavorable manner. Yeah. And after that point, every time you encountered this particular person who had dissed your writing style... You actually went out of your way to be really nice to them.
1: Because I'm, like I am like I was highlighting at that point of the book some of my uh, dysfunctional tendencies. I, I kind of was a younger writer and I just wanted to make myself look cool to them because I wanted to convince them they were wrong without know, letting them know I'd read the thing. Like I, um, There's a lot of stuff in the book that was pointed out to me uh, in the, this week that there's a kind of through line of loneliness and wanting to belong in the book which I kind of now recognize is there and makes complete sense of why I loved being in a band so much, you know, because we moved a lot when I was a kid. We moved a lot. We moved. Actually, we did. We, I, I lived in seven houses by the time I was kind of 12. Um, and we moved school, so I had to kind of make new friends. And by the time I'd, I was starting a band, being in a band and being in a gang was like so important to me and it was like it's a huge part of why that was such a big part of my 20s because music was my 20s
0: well tell me a little bit about the early days before we moved on to the band uh you had really quite an unusual dad
1: yeah well so i kind of realized how unusual looking back my dad was a really uh, hands-on dad in a way dads weren't in that era as much Like um, he would cook and clean, and he looked after us, and he changed our nappies, and but he was also in the Ranger Wing, which is like the SAS of the Irish Army, and he was—he's—he's a tough man. He's—he could—he probably won't listen. He could take me in a fight now, and he's in his seventies. Like he's—he's always been. So there was this kind of—I actually think in retrospect it was quite a positive model of masculinity because it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't somebody in the middle of the room talking all the time and he wasn't when me and my brother both kind of say oh my, our dad was in the army people get this image of like some sort of army major sergeant major who kind of drills us and is really conservative and uh, macho my dad was kind of very macho in some ways but like my mom would have been very feminist and my dad was totally on board with that and and definitely did equal shares of everything in the house and everything else. So I think when you put those things together, it's kind of healthy. And you also got, I got a real sense of masculinity as a kind of performance early on. And partly because I wasn't very good at being masculine. So I, like in that piece, I, like there's a bit in the book talking about sports. I was good at acting it. And then I realized, I think they were all acting it. Actually, I wasn't very good at acting it. Like I thought I was good at acting it. But I, I'm sure loads of people went. Look at that fop trying to play football.
0: I would never guess that your first nickname was Bone Crusher. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, that was that was my first nickname. No, it was, <laughs> yeah, that was a temporary football-related nickname.
0: Actually, we have uh, a little um, audio clip now of you reading from the book, so I think this might be a good time to play it.
1: When I was nine, <laughs> I began to pretend that I liked sport. I did this in order to fit in, and I did it for around seven years. The truth is, I can barely comprehend sports existence. Ten seconds into a sports game, and I mean all of the sports games, from archery to Z-cars, I find my eyelids drooping and the colours on the screen blending into one another. It's like I have a sports-specific learning difficulty. However, as a child, I also had the instincts of a rural politician, and I knew that not liking sport would be no good for my social standing as I moved from school to school, So I collected football stickers and played on football and rugby teams and accompanied my friends to matches and memorised useful names and facts and phrases. I hated it so much. Let's face it, sport is just stupid. Nothing is created. No necessary tasks are completed. The costumes are no fun. The characters aren't that interesting. At the end of a game of sport, as far as I can see, a bunch of grunting people are just more tired than they were earlier in the day. My only advantage as a sportsman was that I was large for my age. So although I didn't have any interest in the games and I didn't have the skill to take the ball off anyone, my teammates discovered that if they put me in a defensive position, then occasionally I fell on someone at a convenient moment. They took to calling me Bone Crusher. After a time, they momentarily thought I'd broken someone's leg. I'm sorry, Seamus. I was genuinely aiming for the ball. This nickname did not fit my more urbane self-image. I was living a lie, but it took me years to figure this out.
0: And that is from OK, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea by Patrick Frayne, of course. And Patrick, it's it's funny to think of it now that you want to be a particular kind of person, the kind of person who would be accepted. Um, but in ways, as you've I've mentioned earlier, there is a kind of a, a loneliness about that, a feeling of isolation and um as a small child you seemed to grapple with very very big truths you worried about um the passing of loved ones and indeed tragedy did come early and bereavement is is a a feature of the book as well um but were you conscious i suppose from an early age of kind of the bigger philosophical realities
1: i think so like i i would have read a lot when i was and i read um I think some of my favorite books in my early teens were kind of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Sue and like, Adrian Adrian Moll. Moll. And they're books that actually, they're very funny, but they grapple with big questions. And I would have, um, like, I I think I was a worrier. And actually, Catholicism is such a weird thing to be kind of forcing down the throats of kids when they're really young. Because obviously that's grappling with the big questions and you're dealing with issues of hell and heaven and i think loads of people are like my age kind of grew up scared of going to hell like it was embedded in the world we grew up in um and sin and all that there was kind of a backdrop of this stuff like people sometimes seem to think that was gone by the time like i grew i was born in 75 and i grew up through the 80s some people can argue that it was kind of gone by then but no it was really it was, there was still this kind of overhanging, weird Catholic thing. So even if you were going to reject it, you had to grapple with it. So I was really conscious of those things. And I was really conscious of, like, I, I was a guilty-feeling child. Uh, I, I used to feel, like, I have an essay in the book, and it is a funny essay that just goes through all the bad things I did when I was young. But, like, there's a hint of, like, fear of sin running through that. Like, I don't think I make it that explicit.
0: And sometimes it tips over into, and I think this is actually one of the really striking features of the book, but it tips over into kind of um, a feeling of great, great trepidation about yourself. There was a phase in the book where you really worried that you might do harm to a loved one.
1: Like, it's interesting because that essay is one of the first ones I wrote, and that's an essay called Brain Fever. And it deals with, It's kind of it was kind of me grappling with the fact that... I have had mental health difficulties on and off for years and because I, part of the reason I wrote it is because I think I present outwardly as quite a calm person. I think you said that to me once years ago, like you said, and I remember going, am I, do I seem like quite a calm person? Because I think I probably do present outwardly as a calm person. But people who, like Anna, my wife, who know me well and the guys in my band would know that I'm a neurotic box of worries.
0: Definitely, I would have thought you were calmer.
1: Yeah, so I uh, I present calmly, I'm decent in a crisis, but the reality is I've had mental health difficulties on and off over the years. And I kind of, part of the reason I wrote that essay is I thought it was important that I present those things honestly and put them out front and like you, like it's a theoretically light book but actually it deals with quite gra- serious things and I think I wrote quite a serious book by stealth like some of the essays are straightforwardly funny essays but I was kind of really influenced by people like Emily Pine and Sinead Leeson and Deborah Levy and like just these really good essayists and writers who go honestly chronicle some of the darker things and some of the more unsettling worrying things about life um and i thought it wasn't probably wasn't good for people who might know me on the outside to think i was this really together person all the time um and that it was important to kind of bring that stuff like that's why i wrote i wrote that essay partly the one about mental health partly to figure things out for myself but also because i thought it wasn't a bad thing for people to know that about me. Like I don't, like some people have asked, you know, are you worried about putting some of that stuff? Out? And it doesn't bother me at all. Like there's definitely stuff I didn't put in the book for various reasons. And I was really struck when I read really good stuff by other essayists, like like the people I mentioned, or Olivia Lang, or like that. What they're doing is they're taking the stuff that they've processed and they're putting out there. And anything that's in that book is stuff I've kind of processed and thought about. Um, and I do think the reality is one of the, the sorry, I'm going to go on about this for a bit, but some of the things I've noticed about the social media world is that it kind of encourages everyone to kind of compress their identity into this one thing. And The reality is there's lots going on with everyone. Like they're, they're this person in their job, they're this person with their family, they're this person with their friends. And it's always a bit different Um,
0: I was actually struck when I think there's a paragraph towards the end of the book where you talk about how you would much prefer to be able to ring up whoever deals with sick leave or whatever in the paper Mm -hmm. and just say the reason I need this is because I'm having a a day of where there's a lack of mental clarity for me or where I just need to get back into bed and that's part of who I am as a person. And it's funny just reading a paragraph like that, you know, because I know in the States there are some um workforces or companies where they allow you to have what they call a duvet day um where you know you're just basically saying I'm having a day where I'm finding things really tough whereas in Ireland I don't think that psychology has ever really percolated through you, you know you are meant to just battle on with it um, because maybe we haven't gotten to the point where we're able to say look mental health is as important as physical health and if we're having a day where our mental health is being severely negatively affected we yeah. should be allowed to say that
1: I think we we just, compa- even now that we do talk about these things more, there's still a tendency to compartmentalise it. Like, rather than going, okay, this is an ongoing thing that we're all dealing with in different ways. Um, kind of like physical health, you know? We get coughs and colds and we hurt ourselves every now and again. And, you, and that's just part of the process of life. Um, like, so part of it is I think we are normalising it a bit more now, but we're not there yet. You know,
0: Do you think Ireland is a good place to be in terms of looking after one's mental health
1: it's way better than it was like i do the more i look back at the ireland i grew up in the more unhealthy it looks the more we learn about things the more we um the more i mean i read um new low uh are you somebody are you somebody for the first time recently Well, in lockdown it's so good and it's so the country she depicts for women is just so dark that i don't think it would be possible to i i, I don't I, it shouldn't be possible to read that book and not come out the other end of it pretty extremely feminist i don't know if that was her intention and i'm not even going to put thoughts into or, or motivations into her head but it just depicts beautifully and truthfully such a dark country and in recent years, it does feel like we've made... It feels like we've had a breakthrough collectively, psychologically, and we are now um, more open, a more liberal, which I think is linked to it, and a kinder place. We, there's still rough edges, and there's still things where, you know, you worry about the future kindness of the country, and you look at what's happening in other countries with, you know, lack of respect for outsiders and... Um, but uh, I've got my fingers, all my digits crossed, and I'm hopeful.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly Nilo Fuelan, you know, Nell McCafferty, that whole era. Uh, Marion and some really incredible voices. I'm reading Nell's
1: journalism at the moment. I borrowed it off my mum, and it's just, again, you're reading it going, oh, my God, like, like part of it is these pioneers were saying this stuff in the Irish Times in the 70s and 80s, and it took 40 years before anyone properly listened. You know, it's amazing.
0: Yeah, it really is. Uh, and we've lost actually so many great figures recently. I mean, Marion Finucane was just such a shock, yeah. of course. But, you know, in terms of men, there have been so many more books and articles published recently talking about the sense that young men are are not coping as well in Ireland as as they should be. And that suicide, depression, the rates, the incidents are just extremely high. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to make sense. So, you know, reading your book, actually, um, I was really struck by how you described getting into the band and about how it was like a second family for you and it was a way of moving into the world through another family, uh, that was a creative outlet for you, but they were your brothers, you know.
1: Yeah, that's what that's what it felt like, and like retrospectively, and also we were surrounded by. Like, I feel quite lucky about my twenties in that we we kind of had the band and we were based in a. The band was called the National Prayer Breakfast, and you can find some of it on YouTube. That that was, we were based in like a house off Dorset Street in Dublin for ages. And it wasn't just the lads in the band. There was like a group of people living around that house, like friends of ours there or nearby. We all supported each other in our mad little endeavours and we didn't know what the right way to do things were.
0: Which is in a way that the title of the book, you know, okay, let's do your stupid idea. The title came from another project that you had worked on but the concept itself the okay let's do your stupid idea is all about indulging other people and supporting them uh, or being supported yeah
1: or it's actually it's a bit more passive aggressive than that because <laughs> it's like so it's actually a lesson i learned from uh having continuous arguments with dara the bass player in my band about like how to do things and i kind of slowly started to realize you know having the arguments is more time consuming than trying the idea um so my advice to people now with all creative projects is if if your co-collaborator goes let's do this and you think okay let's you think this is a stupid idea then think okay just think it let's do your stupid idea and as you do it it'll either die because it doesn't work or you're wrong and it's a great idea and usually that will happen in the time it takes you to have the first stage of an argument that will last for weeks
0: The chronicling, actually, of the band is is really, really enjoyable uh, in the book. And, you know, I was interested to read about how you effectively became the lead singer of NPB or National Prayer Breakfast. And you say it was because in the 90s, the singers of loud Irish bands were those who could survive a bad PA system.
1: Pretty much.
0: I mean, is that just being, you know, self-deprecating?
1: No, because I now no like i have a decent voice um but i never thought of myself as a singer for a long time what what used to happen in loud garage bands is and actually even when i formed bands in school nobody ever wanted to be the singer nobody had that healthy self-esteem that made them want to be the singer so what usually happened is either someone who didn't have an instrument sang or kind of the person who was least had less of a problem sang or the person who could just survive the terrible PA system sang so I always had a loud voice Mm. so I could cut through like horrible shrieky echoey rooms um and we like there was a great scene there was a really good independent DIY scene in Dublin in the 90s and kind of loads of bands I still really like kind of came out of that like the Jimmy Cake which my sister-in-law was in and um or is, in.
0: This is
1: Lisa. Lisa uh, and Lisa Carey. And then uh, the Redneck Manifesto. Um, there was bands that um, like Life After Modelling, um, Dot Creek. There were, and they're all quite diverse. Um, Jubilee All Stars. Um, and there was a, but nobody was, everyone was coming from a, that, which I think is really healthy. I think it's an amazing thing to do. The DIY thing, it's not about trying to, none of those bands were trying to be signed they had they were all slightly influenced by punk in some way and wanted to just create things and put the thing out like uh, you know the first stuff we recorded we didn't use as a demo we just released it as a feeding frenzy was one of the first things we recorded and we released it as a single and it never occurred to us like we did have ambitions as well kind of i think i say in the book that um we I, i definitely had kind of confused things like i was like going could we be like rich like 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 fugazi and really credible but also rich could we could we do that like you I, do say
0: that in the book actually and it's kind of an interesting you know you were sort of like we are both for the people and of the people but also
1: yeah also if the people want to <laughs> elevate us like we were totally happy to take that, that throne it's you know there was definitely like we definitely had a kind of confused thing going on At the same time, I think the really healthy thing about it, and no one I know who comes from that scene has any regrets or bitterness, is that everything we did, we put out and it was just out there and people could have it. And, you know, maybe a few hundred people would have it, but they liked it. And you played your gigs then. And there was a bit of a, like when we're talking about like me looking for a community, like we always felt slightly on the outs with the scene. Mm. But then I look back and go, no, we were in the scene. We just, like, everyone, that's the, the other thing I kind of realized as I get older, is everyone feels a bit like an outsider. So they, there's always this sense that, oh, they must all be hanging around together without us. But no, they're just hanging out the way you are, and you're slightly detached, but you've got your own little thing going on, and you're creating it. Um I, k- I think everyone should be in a band, and and I love the I, I know I'm going on about the band now, but I love the you know that's sn- I think it was in Sniffin' Glue, it was in a fanzine in the seventies, and it's kind of a famous thing now where there's like the chord uh, graph for three chords. I think it's like E A and G, and it just shows that, and then it goes there's three chords. Now start a band. That attitude is brilliant because
0: it's all you need. Yeah. Yeah. And we I, feel, I feel like we're going to sound like Bono now, three chords in the truth, but like it is.
1: <laughs> well, he 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 ripped it off that scene. Like the the um the thing about it is, like what was amazing about that is, we could do gigs when we could barely play. Like we actually arranged to do gigs and arranged to record stuff, and then you become good by being embarrassed in public again. You know, you go, oh, we have to get better.
0: Well, actually, you talk a lot about singing in the book. I mean, of course, you were influenced somewhat by Nick Cave. Uh, but what I was really struck by was how you characterise. I mean, you sing, obviously, with your partner, uh, with your wife, Anna, a lot as well. You go on um, singing holidays together. There's a singing place that you go to in yes, Wales, right? Yes, there is.
1: We go, um, th- there's a, a band called The Unthanks we really like, and they do singing weekends, and we, we go do that. Mm. Um but and it's brilliant. And as the actually the weird thing happened is like the last band I was in was two thousand and six, um, and we I put out a record called Patrick Fain and His Bad Intentions. Um, with that was the band, and we haven't I hadn't really released anything since then. But it's actually since then I've really begun to love singing as a unifying thing.
0: It struck me when you said that in the book because I wonder to what extent money and commercial ambitions have the effect of dulling the enjoyment sometimes of the the art for its own sake
1: um and i think it's something i had to learn a little bit about in writing as well um that if you're constantly focused on the goal or the the end point or you this is to make a better album or this is to make a better book you sometimes don't go into the thing enough you know you're just thinking of like how to make a chorus or how, like, whereas there's something brilliant that happens with all art when, when you're just sitting like with singing, when you're sitting in the room, like we do a lot of singing with friends. Um, we do a lot of singing with Roisin Ingle, my colleague in the Irish Times, because she lives down the road and she loves singing. And in recent years, and Lisa, Anna's sister, and Lisa's other sister, Jenny, but she's over in England um, most of the time. But so when you're singing in the room with other people, there's something kind of beautiful that happens when you're just, you could be just doing an aha song something uh, metaphysical happens when a bunch of people are singing a song which like i do say in that essay could be used for evil like there's a reason why you know national anthems and songs are used to unite people it's because you sort of lose all uh ability to judge when you're in that mass singing away
0: but also very successful bands are often compared to religious cults i mean if you think about it like when you see uh an audience at a gig really really adore the band in a very particular sense i remember going to for example frames gigs at the height oh of God, their success like that, and there was definitely a
1: religious if there was a load that. of like uh, you know kool-aid at the back of the venue and glenn said why don't you go drink that now i'd be there I'd like, be yes. there. I, like <laughs> i've been at those frames gigs and you're like going, okay i'm losing all objective sense of right and wrong
0: yeah yeah no you can completely see it so but it's interesting i mean you, you write about how anytime you felt a bit lost that singing has helped you One thing I wanted to ask a little bit about, and it's, again, characterised very sensitively in the book, is the story of Paul. Um, Because if there's a lot of love going through this book, there's also a lot of pain. And there are a number of of your your friends whose time came too soon. And it's a hard thing to write about. Um, So perhaps you can tell me a little bit about how you got on.
1: So it was, so Paul died um when he was 35 of a very so paul was the was one of my best friends and he was the singer and drummer in the band um and he died very suddenly when he was 35 um and that kind of all the story of like i kind of realized like a lot of the story of the band and everything that's a kind of key point in the story we were actually talking about doing some music again together me and paul and darren Um, And me, at the last conversation I had with Paul was about music a few days before he died. And it's just, like, I think anyone who's experienced bereavement knows that you never entirely process it. Like, it it always just feels, um, it always just feels unreal, which is why, and I've written about this in the book, you do have these dreams where the person is just back. And and in the dream, sometimes you just take it for granted, and, and other times you don't. Um, But it does, like writing about it, it was funny, sometimes writing about it, it was deliberate in that I said I want to write about this, like I wrote about the dreams, and that was very deliberate. Other times I was writing about other things, and that just came into it, because Paul is such a big part of my story. So I'd be writing about driving, and then I'd realize that, you know, well, I can't write about driving around with the band without kind of bringing this in a little bit. can't write about the history of the band without bringing this in. Um, uh, and then, and other things, like you kind of, I have an essay, it was actually one of another of the earlier essays I wrote about a summer, me and Paul and Corncrake and other friends spent in Germany. Um, and it's not mentioned in that essay, but it kind of runs through that essay. In, it's like a subtext, because that's just an essay about just mad kind of slightly overprivileged young men with no sense um and it's
0: if an essay could have a smell it yeah. would be <laughs> that essay would reek <laughs> i yeah, wanted to no. put all of you in a shower after reading i it. don't i
1: don't know how often i showered that summer like we were just yeah like that's the kind of like i it was important to me doing the book that there was kind of light and shade in it So there was definite and actually being in a band had a huge influence on how I did the book because I spent ages sequencing it like sequencing tracks on a record. Like I was trying to figure out how to get tones right. You know, like it was in and when I remember being in the in my bands, different bands, where You'd kind of look at the song list and you go, we need another heavy one. Or we need, a, we need a fast one to go here. Or we need a nice slow song here. And sometimes I actually went away to order myself. I'd go, okay, I think I need another uh, funny essay to balance out some of the, the darker stuff. Or I'd go, I need to write another serious essay just to make this point a bit clearer. It's uh,
0: unusual to have that ability to detach yourself so thoroughly from the work
1: see, that was, that's in the, it's in the editing, you kind of, like, it's like always, like, this is what I've kind of come to realise about creating stuff. Like, if you bring your editor in too soon, you don't get anything written, because your brain is going, this is stupid. um, And you need to just work through the stupid, and you need to work through, or this is like, a big thing was, um, I didn't want things to be self-indulgent. Um, but as sometimes so you have to but you have to keep that out of your head when you're writing the thing is it self-indulgent to write this type of story um so there's stuff i didn't put in and there's essays i didn't um include because i thought they were self-indulgent because i wanted things to be um i've kind of realized this is like my buzzword do you now but i wanted the essays to be either helpful or entertaining or both like some of them are both and if they didn't hit those, the threshold for either of those they didn't make it in if it was just you know like there's that thing about how writing is bleeding on the page but i don't know like if it's just bleeding on the page you just have a bloody page and nobody wants that so like there has to be a little bit of what does the, what does the reader need from me um and i've never written really about myself so my journalism is usually either rep- reporting which i kind of love and I love involved reporting where you get to spend a bit of time doing things or it's writing the column about kind of telly or other culture in which case I'm usually trying to make people laugh you know um, so I'd never actually I've never had either an opinion column or a column where I talk about my life um, even though there's amazing examples of both uh, from other people um, so when I first started doing this, it was entirely new, which is also, I think, why I ended up writing it in a way, because um, I had been writing short stories and I just get this urge every now and again to recount something that happened to me. You know, I'd sit down and I'd go like the Bremen thing I've taught for ages. I should write those stories down because they are funny and they're daft.
0: And you do poke fun at yourself. You write so often in the book about other people telling you that you're stealing the limelight, whether, right, yeah. it's, whether it's when you become lead singer or how you imagine Paul might have characterized uh, aspects of, of the book yeah. or even when uh, in relation to your brother. I think at one point you talk about how uh, when your younger brother was born, you Broke your wrist that day and. Not on
1: purpose, I I think.
0: And you know, it was another example, as uh, family members might have put it, about making the day uh, less about your brother's arrival. Although, of course, he got lost, which was just crazy.
1: Yeah,
0: Uh, they literally misplaced him as a baby, and they found him
1: again. He looks very like me, so we definitely got the right one. back. You're fairly
0: sure. You're fairly sure. One thing I wanted to ask a little bit about: you actually speak relatively little about journalism in the book considering how much journalism you have done over the years and you've mentioned the Sunday Tribune but you know that doesn't really get a run out and the Irish Times is mentioned in passing if it if it serves to illustrate a topic or theme that you're writing about. Uh, I will say that after you became staff at the Irish Times I recall meeting you and being quite struck by your new haircut. All oh, right. And, and <laughs> I, had a, I
1: had a nice new short haircut.
0: You did. And right. in the book, you you write a little bit about how you started to have a uniform of a kind to go and interview people because you felt that it was the best version of you that would mean that they wouldn't look twice at you. And and you meant that in a good sense, as in they would be free to tell wasn't, their story.
1: It wasn't planned like that, actually. And I think I've said it like it was I realized... Um, I have an essay about journalism, about writing and interviewing, and um, it was kind of me thinking a lot about what I do and the strange things you do that you've experienced of too, like like the strange things you do when you're going to meet someone to interview them, where you research your, their life like you've done right and, and you know more about them than they know about you and there's all these and then there's the different power dynamics uh, that i talked about before like there, it's one thing when you're interviewing like a famous actor it's totally different if you're interviewing a vulnerable person who never spoke to a journalist before and and the essay is kind of about those things and i realized the uniform thing I just realized that I was always dressing, I, I wasn't doing it intentionally, but I kind of psychoanalyzed myself. I was always dressing the same way when I was heading out, particularly if I was reporting from somewhere. And I realized that I was kind of completely neutralizing myself, you know, like I was wearing the most uh, neutral version of who who I am, so that there's, that you're not giving out any signals about the type of person you are, um, which was strange to realize that I I was kind of I was kind of doing this. I'll tell you one interesting thing about the book in general, that um, writing some that essay is an example of one that after I wrote it, I'd been off work for a while and I went back, I realized that I kind of completely rewired how I thought about journalism in the process of writing that essay. So actually, the kind of way I described me doing stuff in that essay is not really how I do it since. And, and I had similar things happen with other essays where in the, the process of thinking things through or kind of going, you do this, you do that, you do the other thing, kind of broke a pattern. So I don't dress like that anymore. <laughs> and, well, I was about to
0: say, because the hair is back. Yeah, and, uh, that's partly locked down. That's partly locked down. But, you know, it did it did make me think, you know, there was a, there's a point that everybody goes where, where a lot of people find feel themselves to be anti-establishment or on the fridges or on the outside and there's a point that they reach when they maybe have a house and a mortgage and and a good job and they go well I can't really you know call myself it, yeah. that anymore so it's, like does being establishment uh give you a certain amount of concern
1: no it gives it gives me a certain amount of um like a sense of responsibility um, like I, I I am, I've said it a few times now, but like I am incredibly conscious of power dynamics and I'm incredibly conscious of the fact that journalists do have a relative power in certain ways, you know, like not in all ways, but we get to have our say. We get to um, express what we think publicly if we want and we also get to shape the story, whether you're doing it consciously or unconsciously. And I'm really conscious of... The bias, like I try and interrogate the biases I have, and I and I am not in the same position I was when I started in, like when I was a kind of journalist ten years ago, and I was still a bit more on the outside. Like once you are writing for the Times or the Business Post, and you're, um, you are definitely whatever you want to tell yourself you're you're in some way an establishment figure. You know, you, you might to have your own perspectives on it and you have different perspectives to other people. Um, and I just don't want that establishment to kind of burrow away at my brain without me interrogating it. I think journalism is really, really important. Um, and I think that, you know, it can change form and it will. Uh, but there's definitely an issue with journalism having been very white, male and middle class for a long time, and I am white, male and middle class. I think that uh, we need to be kind of reshaping who is making journalism mm-hmm. and there is kind of biases, there are internal biases that come from everyone being from the same backgrounds and being the same kind of person. And we need to kind of, because we're in positions of like relative security, having jobs in the media, um, you want to kind of interrogate that all the time, I think. You should never get comfortable with it.
0: You shouldn't. Um, and uh, actually, I think it was Rachel Collins did that amazing Irish Times magazine yeah. recently, where she, um, in the nicest possible way, threw out all of the columnists' unusual features yeah. and replaced them with people of color writing about issues that meant a lot to them. And, she and had it Emma was Emma
1: Debiri kind of guest editor, and Rachel did. kind of step at the back, and that was exactly the type of thing.
0: It was an extraordinary yeah. issue. It really was. Um, but what, like, what, where do you think, like, now, like, because we're all kind of, we're not in lockdown, but we're not moving freely and easily. I mean, maybe this time to ourselves in our homes will change things, change processes.
1: As long as, like, was um, a really nice element in Ireland at any rate. There was a really nice kind of community spirited thing that kind of came to the fore. And there was an appreciation of... Um, people who do kind of frontline jobs and and I, we need to hang on to that and not get into like i worry about what happens sometimes in crisis is that like the last crisis the economic crisis the divisive thing about public sector private sector that kind of came in and really covered over the fact that this had nothing to do like the last crisis had nothing to do with the public and private sectors it had to uh, our people from those it was to do with banks and like politicians not regulating banks and quickly it became oh the Teachers are paid too much, which is a ridiculous kind of way to take that argument. And I'm kind of hoping now that we hang on to that um, kind of the more solidarity community spirit thing and the appreciation of the people who are stocking shelves and the people who are caring for older people and aren't being very well paid for it.
0: Yeah, well, I I won't keep you too much longer, but I did want to mention one essay in the book that was really powerful in that regard. And it was about the year that you spent as a carer. like, you saw a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah, like, I I mean, that was, like, there's plenty of people probably listening to this who actually are carers, and they're doing it for a lot longer than I did it. Um, and I'm, so I'm very conscious of that, too. But the, the, the thing it really taught me is, I kind of felt this anyway, because I was always kind of had a left wing kind of bent, but it really, really reinforced the idea that, how we decide how to pay people is really arbitrary you know the fact that certain jobs get really really high rent manumeration and other kinds of jobs as we are talking about now in the the pandemic are for for kind of for stupid reasons they're not treated with the same respect or given the same money even though like i, I learned a few things firstly is that i think most people can do those caring jobs to a degree like some people went oh that sounds so hard but no like we're human so you can respond to human need and that's largely in some ways it simplifies things so you've got somebody who needs to be fed or needs to be comforted or needs to be entertained and you you do those things but there was also people there who i thought were like virtuosic at caring who were just like their their ability to know what someone was trying to say and to look after them and to care for them was like as skilled as any, like, programmer or uh, economist or whatever, or journalist. But they're still not. It's still treated. They're not getting paid, right? Yeah, they're not getting. And and I I mean, I do have a strong feeling that, you know, Ireland's got a lot of potential (laughs) as a country, but that we do have a lot of things topsy-turvy in terms of how we value stuff. And some of my sense of that comes from, I mean, I think it comes from a lot of things, but some of it comes from that year where I just really went away going, this is quite hard. This is hard and not quite hard. And then when I started doing journalism, journalism seemed so easy, you know. Um, and then it didn't make sense that I was being paid more for journalism.
0: What, what is the future for you? You know, like whether you're talking about journalistic aims or, you know, other creative aims, like you've spoken there about other people needing their their cause needing to be highlighted but like is that something that is very important to you going forward uh, or are there other ambitions as well that you'd like to realize
1: um i really so what i've enjoyed about doing the book and writing short stories as well is um i kind of hit a point where i was doing a lot of work for the irish times and i was good at it and enjoying it but i kind of forgotten how to do other kinds of writing or i thought i had and i had to i needed to get back into that and i think i would like to do more kinds of writing that's i definitely want to keep reporting and i it is like a very important strand of my apart from the fact that i think it's useful and i want to highlight some of those things you've talked about um it's also really an ongoing education like i um you go and you interview people and you learn about their lives and it's r- I, i'm kind of slightly addicted to the asking question side of it now so i just want to keep doing that um but i also want to do different kinds of writing um my brother david made a really made two features a really great film oh, called dating, dating amber yeah. is so good and so we we're talking about doing some writing together yeah um, i love that film that's brilliant he's he's, he's brilliant and he, like he um like he worked so hard for ages, and again, like loads of creative stuff, and that, like his last film, The Cured, was really great,
0: which I haven't seen. I've heard yeah. really good things about. Yeah, but
1: but Dating Amber just landed. There's a load of people who really rightly um, feel like it tells their story. You know, if you look at kind of the tread on tw- the Dating Amber hashtag, there's all these kind of young queer people and older queer people talking about their experiences.
0: Um, I don't know, was it you or, or him that had said, but I read somewhere that uh, somebody had made the point that, uh, what a crazy idea to put two gay characters <laughs> as the lead.
1: So this is, <laughs> like, people think, uh, this is where, you know, people think things have progressed completely, but he was still fighting that battle as a filmmaker. You know, like, where, I mean, it's, he says that he had at one point, like, somebody who was tangentially kind of looking at the film kind of said do they both have to be gay (laughs) the point (laughs) the point of the story is that they're both gay um so he he had to kind of fight those battles and he really fought it and created something beautiful you know
0: yeah it's a it's a really it's a very individual portrait of ireland as well which is lovely and has so many lovely touches in there that anyone who grew up in that era would recognize um but Patrick, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it, and thank I you. hope that in the case of doctor turned patient, you've survived this experience. I have. I with relatives, it. <laughs> we do always ask. Um, I say we, I mean I, uh, yeah. guests for uh, a favorite song that they might like to hear a snippet from. So is there something you'd like to pick?
1: Um I'd like to pick Paul Song, Paul Clancy's uh Paul released a record under the t- under the name Clancy. Um uh, just it was pu- pu- kind of came out posthumously and the kind of single from that is an amazing beautiful song called Hope in Your Heart and it's uh it's gorgeous and more people should know it. So maybe play a snippet of that. But if there's hope in your heart, then it won't be long. If there's hope in your heart, then it won't be long. If there's hope in your Hope in your heart, then won't
0: be and my thanks once again to Patrick Frayne. Patrick's new book, OK, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea, is available now. And I highly recommend you go out and get it. It's a great book to lift the spirits and to get you thinking. And that is nearly it from me for another episode of My Roots Are Showing. Before I head off though, just to let you know, I do have a Patreon account, so if you would like to support this podcast to the tune of the price of a cup of coffee, please do, it's patreon.com forward slash Nadine O'Regan, N-A-D-I-N-E-O-R-E-G-A-N, and you can also find the link to that Patreon account via my page on Twitter, that's twitter.com forward slash My Roots Are Show. Also, if you'd like to get in touch with me generally, you can do so via that Twitter account or via my personal account at Nadine O'Regan. And do remember, if you enjoy the podcast, there are always lots of other ways to support it. You can talk about it to your friends. You can give it a like or a star rating. It all helps spread the word and it's always much appreciated. As ever, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. So till the next time, this is Madina Regan signing out. Do take care.